Test, test. Can y'all hear me okay? Good. I'm glad to be out of that mask. <laughs> My glasses always fog up when I put them on there. Um, anyway, I always thought heat was the defogger, right? But now heat is the fogger. So we're going to go ahead and do a prayer, and then we'll get our class started. Uh, just filling in for wit. Um, I know Witt is kind of the expert in the, in the word to me. I look up to him quite a bit. He is a good mentor. Uh, so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson. Heavenly and righteous Father, we just thank you, dear Lord, for fellowship. We thank you for edification. Father, we hope, trust, and pray as we get into your word, dear Lord, that, uh, that you would speak through us through the Holy Spirit that we would learn those things that uh, you want us to learn through this lesson, dear Lord. Father, forgive us when we fall short. Help us to always dialogue with you in prayer, dear Lord, and help us to always seek you for guidance and understanding. Uh, we ask that you bless this class, dear Lord. We want to lift up uh, Brother Herb at this time and uh, Sister Deborah as, they, uh, as she is uh, terminally ill, dear Lord. We just pray for strength for that family. Uh, we ask that you... Um, Encamp your love around them and, and walk with them through this difficult time. And we just praise you and give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to begin our study there. Uh, been reading Colossians a little bit. Uh, actually, I've been reading a lot of books. Uh, uh, sometimes I kinda, I'm kind of limited on understanding of these books, so you have to read them maybe eight or nine times just to try to get the gist of them, and, and I still don't. Uh, I don't know if, if, if you're like that or not. You're more, probably more educated than I am, but uh, God always speaks to me uh, through his word, and, and sometimes it takes me a couple times to get it, and when, when I have an epiphany, I'm like, oh, that's what I was supposed to get from it, uh, and then I get it. But we're going to get into this Colossian letter, a letter written by Paul uh, to the church at Colossae, and uh, here's something kind of funny. I don't know if you do this or not. But I went through looking at different ways to pronounce Colossae, 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 or whatever. And who's right? So I listened to different ministers to see how they pronounce it. Just to, I was like, okay, how does someone else pronounce it? So who's to say what's right? But anyway, uh, Colossae, I'll say that. If I say the opposite, well, you know I've gotten it from several different people. So let's get into our study, and um, hopefully we'll get something that, that God wants us to get from it. So the book of Colossians' purpose, besides showing the supremacy and sufficiency uh, and divinity of Christ, is how Christians are to live in the world and before God. When we become new creatures in Christ, we put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Those are the things we used to do, but now we are to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
And it doesn't matter who you are. In our own nature, we gossip, fought, strove against others, but now we are to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven us. So you also must forgive. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. And if there is no real fruit, then there is no real root. Jesus once rebuked the religious establishments by telling them this honor with me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so in light of this real threat, Paul warns the Colossian church to beware of philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So Epaphras, a certain name Epaphroditus, had sent Paul a letter in regards to the church at Colossae that heretical teaching was springing up in this particular church. And he wanted to know what uh, he needed to do with this situation. And so while Paul was in prison, he writes this letter to Colossae, a church in the region now known as Turkey. He writes to this church, and he wants them to know about the head of the body. And he's talking about Christ. So pretty much what he does, he lays out a resume of Christ's deity and why he is the only one who is worthy to be the head of the church. Okay, The epistle to the Colossians is remarkably full of the delightful fact, the worldwide family love of gospel. In this epistle, Paul rejoices that the gospel had begun to come to all the world, that its blessed truth was preached to all the creation under heaven, and that the riches of the glory and this secret, this mystery were made known among the heathen. He lets them know that it is the most precious possible news to him that they have faith toward the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, and love to all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for them in heaven, it is a truth that wears well and bears perpetual using and gets brighter with use. This truth that the gospel, with its one Lord and its one hope, tends to directly to bind believing hearts in one. So what we want to do is kind of look at an outline. I need that clicker, see if this works. There we go. So we're going to look at an outline of Colossians before we get into it. Uh, so first in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see the doctrine of the preeminence of Christ. So chapter 1, we see salutation from Paul. And Paul always greet people with grace and peace. Uh, in, and Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the believers in 1, 3 through 14, we see the glories of Christ, uh, the church's head, which is what we're going to be talking about, the church's head. The ministry committed to Paul in uh, verse 24 through 29, Christ's sufficiency against the pearls of philosophy 
legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, 1 through 23. The believer's duty in chapter 3 through 4 to the preeminent Christ, which is what uh, 3 through 4 is talking about, what our duty as Christians is in following Christ and following his will. So this is what uh, chapter 3 and 4 is talking about. There's only four chapters anyway, so... And this book is really important when it comes to the deity of Christ and as well as how we as Christians are to walk uh, in the sight of God. Um, so in, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 17, the believer's new life, putting off the old man and putting on the new, uh, appropriate behavior for members of the Christian household, the believer's prayer life and witness by life and speech. And all these things is really important for, uh, for strengthening our walk with Christ uh, because we live in a sinful world and uh, if we don't stay attached to the, or if we don't stay plugged in to the energy source of the word of God, uh, then we're going to be taking in whatever the world dictates and uh, the mind is like a sponge. It absorbs everything that the eyes see, everything that the ears hear, the mind absorbs it, and it stays with us for a long, long time. When certain things happen in life, it kind of brings back memory of what you were doing at that particular time. Uh, and I'll give you an example. This is probably a horrific example, but um, about 10 years ago, might have been 20. 20 years ago, there was a pick-a-flick right down the street. I lived on Mossdale, and I was going to rent a movie. Okay? Wanda had, and she, she sends me out to do this, to do that. I don't know if y'all wives do that, but anyway, I do this. I guess they call them honeydews. She sent me out to get a movie. And just as I was pulling up, the place was being robbed. Okay? And the robbery had just ended when I got out of my car to go in. And lo and behold, the guy who was doing the robbery had gotten shot and killed. And the body and the Dallas Cowboy hat that he had on was still laying there, and I just missed it. And so 20 years later, when I see something like that, it brings back that memory. And that's how the mind works. And you, you all can reflect on something that happened or something you were doing 20 years ago and then something occur and then it brings back a memory as to what happened. Well, the mind works like that. The mind doesn't care what you plant in it. Just like a field, you can plant corn and it'll grow corn. Or you can plant nightshade, and it'll grow nightshade. So the mind doesn't care what you plant in it, but it's going to get planted one way or the other. So we have to stay plugged in to the word of Christ in order to stay filled up on spiritual things that we need to to help us walk uh, in, in Christ. As we talk about the church, which is the body of Christ, at some point, we must focus on the leader of the church, the head of the body, 
and that is Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus, the head of the church we belong to, worship at, serve, and strive to help grow. I want us to look carefully at the qualifications that Jesus had that make him the only person worthy and qualified to serve as a true leader and head of God's people. Jesus' qualification as the head of the church are nicely summarized in the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Uh, his background information on this epistle, so we can understand Paul's comments in context, Paul himself had never personally visited this church that was situated uh, in uh, what is now known as Turkey. Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul, uh, is probably the one who established this congregation after being trained by Paul. Uh, the problem in this church began when a certain heretical movement had crept into the church. And so Epaphras had to send Paul a letter to say, hey, what do we need to do? This false teaching is creeping into the church. What do we need to do? So there are many opinions as to what was being taught, but it seems that some were promoting the concept that in addition to Jesus' death on the cross, there needed to be added other works of merit in order to be saved. Some were teaching that in order to obtain complete salvation, these Christians also had to fast and obey certain food laws and take vows of celibacy. This new teaching was dangerous and false because, for one, they claimed that Christ's work was incomplete and in doing so denied his power, his deity, and true position. This, in turn, was weakening the faith of the church and fostering discouragement and despair and lack of confidence in Christ. So Paul had to write this particular letter in order to combat the false teaching that had crept up in Colossae, the church in Colossians, and to, to identify, hey, let's look at the deity of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. You have salvation in Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection redeems you, the shedding of his blood. So let's, Paul sends this letter. And I, I love Paul. Paul's in prison while he's writing this letter. I don't know about you, but if I was in prison, I wouldn't be writing a letter saying, hey, y'all need to do this. I'd be like, hey, why am I in here? Somebody need to get me out. But Paul wrote a lot of letters from in prison. He used his circumstances to still teach Christ. He's used his circumstances to still edify the brethren. He wrote a lot of letters from prison. Unjustly accused, wind up in a Roman jail, and, and in the end, he was able to minister to high officials because of it. So we don't know why our circumstances taken us, but if we cling to the word of God and continue to try to build up and edify one another, then we're going to be exactly what God wants us to be at the time he wants us to be there. So Paul always began his letters with grace and peace. Grace, what God provides, peace is what man experiences because of it. And so this peace that the Colossian church was enjoying, it was being disrupted by this heretical teaching that had crept up in the church. And so the heresies was discounting the grace and upsetting the peace. 
And normally when we go contrary to God's word, peace is always disrupted. It always weighs on our mind. And when that so-called little person on your shoulder says, hey, don't do that. You know you don't need to do that or go there or do this or do that. And our conscience starts to bother us. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, and then he presses on our mind when we get ready to walk, circumvent to uh, the will of God, it brings us, it reels us back in. And so Paul is trying to lay out some things for the church at Colossae, for those members who was doing good, and he's trying to lay out some things for them to look for. Hey, this is what you got to look for. This is what you need to know about the head of the church, about the leader, Jesus Christ. And I want you to hold fast to this teaching, and I want you to move away from that particular teaching. So Paul's always writing different letters to different churches. Some letters are, uh, are good, and some are bad. And some churches are good, and some are bad. But this church was doing pretty good. Paul was really proud of this church. Uh, they just started having some difficulties because of false teaching. And so he wanted them to know, hey, let's get this together. Let's reel this back in. Now, yeah. now when interviewing a candidate for a job, we usually look for two main errors. First, we look at personal background, family history, social status. Second, we look at skills, training, ability and relationships to the job. And I'm sure you've, everyone in here been hired at one point on the job and we had to fill out that resume with all our qualifications on it uh, and with all our background and our family name, address and everything. Then we had to put on there where we worked at before uh, so they can contact. And they can't do that now. I think that's legal now. And, I'm not for sure, for them to contact another company about your, they can still do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, years and years ago, before this became legal, they can contact and say, hey, what kind of worker was this person? What do, what do they do? But now they just look at your resume and then they deduct everything from your resume, whether or not you should be hired for the job. If you have the qualifications, if you have the skills, and what's your family background? I mean, are you from a crazy family? or I'm from a crazy family, but anyway. And then they say, yeah, we're gonna hire you, and then uh, if you have the qualifications, if everything you wrote on the resume is genuine, when you get the job, you can go to work and they see, hey, he was right. But then if everything on your application is a lie, when you get the job, you're just like, I thought he knew how to do that. Well, anyway, Paul is trying to give the church at Colossae the qualifications of Jesus Christ and why they need to serve him and serve him alone. Paul, in a sense, does this very thing when explaining how eminently qualified Jesus is in order to hold a position of head of church. I wish that TV was on. I wouldn't have to keep looking back. There we go. So first Paul gives him Jesus' personal background. He begins by listing three things about Jesus' personal background that establish his qualifi uh, qualifications to be the head of the church. 
One is he's the beloved son of God. That should probably be all the qualifications right there, the son of God. He's the beloved son of God. Uh, in verse 13, another way of saying this is that Jesus is the son of God's love. It is more than just an objective about how God feels about Jesus. It is a title bestowed on Christ by God himself. Jesus has a great family background in that he wears a title given to him by God the Father that no one else bears, beloved son. No one else is worthy to wear this name. It is exclusively Jesus's. Jesus was there in the creation. Jesus can create. He can save. He was sinless. He went to the cross. He endured shame. He was rejected. How much more qualified can you be? Jesus did a lot of things, and Paul is letting him know that, hey, this Jesus is qualified. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. This is part of Jesus' personal background. He is endorsed by God, Almighty God, and only Him. He's the only person that's ever been endorsed by God, is Jesus. He is the image and fullness of the invisible God. Verse 15b through 19. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn? every creature for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that in earth visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things was created by him and for him and he is before all things and by him all and he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. When we read this verse, we think image, reflection, like a mirror and find it hard to grasp how an invisible God can somehow be reflected. To understand this particular characteristic of Jesus, think of the word image as being a derivative and not a reflective. The example between reflective and derivative is the following. And you might have a better example, but this is an example. Drawing a picture of a child, this is reflective. The picture reflects the image of the child in the drawing. Giving birth to a child, this is derivative. The child and the mother are one because they share the same nature, the same life. This is not a perfect parallel because Jesus wasn't created by God, but this example does explain the similarity of natures that Paul is referring to in this verse. When Paul referred to Jesus as the image of the invisible God, he does not mean that Jesus is a copy of God in some form as a kind of reflection. Paul says that Jesus shared 
the same nature as God in the derivative sense. A little later in verse 19, he, he explains it another way where he says that Jesus has the fullness of God dwelling in him. He's not less than God. He's divine in every way God is. Jesus is a part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see three, but it is only one. Jesus also acknowledged that what, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What God knows, Jesus knows. What Jesus knows, the Holy Spirit knows. So they, same nature, the fullness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And was it God who orchestrated the plan of salvation way up in Genesis? And was it Jesus who carried out the plan of salvation that started in the Old Testament? And isn't it the Holy Spirit who is finishing the plan of salvation? And the Holy Spirit is a gift that we receive once we uh, put on Christ in baptism through obedience. He's our mentor. He's our guide. He walks with us. and he don't control us, but he walks with us. He teaches us. As we study the word of God, the Holy Spirit kind of brings clarity to the word of God for us to understand. And it's more visible when we put on the eyes of faith. As we're studying the Holy Spirit, hey, this is what we mean. And when we read that verse a second time, we, we, we see something different. I don't know if you, if, if you do that. I can, I can read a passage and I could read it another day, and I, I was like, man, I didn't see that there. I must have read too fast. Does, does anybody get that, or is it just me? Yeah. This means yes, that means no. Yeah. But that's how it works. So Jesus has a nature that is unique in that he shares a divine nature with God. Next, Jesus is the firstborn. Paul is letting the church at Colossae know about Jesus' qualifications and how close that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are and that he is the only one qualified to be the head of the church. He's the only one qualified to lead the church and to guide the church. He's the only one qualified that can get us to heaven. And knows the way. Chapter 115. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones and dominions, I just read that. Did I duplicate that paper? I must have duplicated that. I think I did. I must have been asleep, I guess. Read it again. Maybe you'll see something different. <laughs> For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things was created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. The church, whom is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he might have a preeminence. So we, use, we usually use the term firstborn to describe uh, the firstborn child in a family. When Paul the Apostle uses this term in, in reference to Jesus, however, he describes very different things about Jesus' special background. Here we go. Firstborn refers to Jesus' rank in the universe. He can rank over everything and person in the universe because he possesses creative power, the ability to create something from nothing. And you know Jesus have power over time and space. He can be everywhere at one time. See, he, he was not, not just only at Antioch, but he, he was at Rural Hill or uh, Laverne or Smyrna Church of Christ or, or this church. Uh, he can be in Atlanta or he has power over space and time. He don't have to be there. And he don't have to, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in a Baptist church, and we've always had, uh, they're called senior pastors, okay? And so there's one senior pastor that is over all, and, and the word pastor just means elder, one senior elder that is over all the rest of the elders. So he makes the final decision or decision about the direction of the church or whatever. The other elders can weigh in, but they really don't have the final say. If he says that, hey, no, I don't think we need to go that way, we need to go this direction, then everybody get on board with him going in that direction. Our elders, of course, they're led by God Almighty. When they get ready to make decisions, they, they meet in prayer and pray about that decision or that situation that has become, uh, came before them before making a decision. So they want God to speak to them in regard to this uh, decision that they have to make. And ultimately, through a lot of prayers, not just in their uh, group of leadership, but through prayer through the congregation as well, about even if they're adding shepherds, they bring it before the congregation, say, we want to add a new shepherd. This is a person's name. Uh, we want to be in prayer about that. If anyone see any reason why they don't meet the qualifications to do this, then they need to be brought forth. So they just don't automatically say, hey, this is what we're going to do regardless of whatever anybody says. No. But in some congregations, the senior elder makes the decision even amidst maybe disagreement about whether or not they should do this or do that. The, the last result rests within him. I don't know if that answers your question or not. He, that's the way you can look at it. He would be the head of that particular body. That's the way you look at it. Yeah. But that's not always the case. So, uh, but like I said, I grew up uh, in a Baptist congregation, and uh, teaching and stuff is great. Uh, I also went to a Church of Christ where. Uh, we wind up with just one elder. 
And the Bible says elders, plural, more than one. And it was requested that the one elder step down until other elders can be uh, selected. And they didn't want to do that, or he didn't want to do that. And so it split the church. So, uh, But anyway, whenever you're making decisions, uh, when our elders are making decisions regarding the, the body or the flock, because the church is the people, not this building, then we need to be in prayer about it. Even in our personal lives, when we get ready to do something or go through something, we need to be in prayer about it. And you'd be shocked and surprised how God intervenes in a decision, however good or bad it may be. And that decision you make on your own could turn out bad. And then you'd be saying, well, God, why you let this happen? And if I was God, I'd say, well, why you didn't ask me? <laughs> but this, this is what we face. Everything that, that uh, every decision that we make, uh, I don't know if that's pretty strong, every decision that we make, a situation that we come in contact with, we, we, all, we always need to be in prayer about it. The Bible said prayers of a righteous avail as much. And if we're going to dialogue with God in prayer, how are we going to get to know him? I mean, it's a communication line. If I don't talk to Scotty, when I see him, we can't build a relationship. I don't know anything about him. He don't know anything about me. It works the same way with God. If we're going to dialogue with God in prayer and reading his word, how are we going to get to know him? The Bible says you don't, you don't have because you don't ask. But we've got to, we've got to realize who our head is. It's not the elders. The elders is just leaders. They're not the head of the church. Okay, and we, we, we've got to not get the church confused with the building. Okay, this is, this is a building where the church meets. The church is the people. And God is the head of his body. Not the elders. The elders are just leaders. They, they lead, they guide, they shepherd. This is what Paul's trying to get uh, the church at Colossae to see, that, hey, God is the head of this body, and here's his qualifications, by the way, in case you was wondering if he's worthy enough to lead the body, here's his qualifications. And he goes on in the latter part of Colossians, oh, and by the way, this is how you're supposed to be living, and this is how you're supposed to be walking, and these are the things that you're supposed to be doing. Firstborn refers to Jesus' rank in the universe. Jesus is first rank over everything, every person in the universe because he possesses creative power. And I don't know of anybody else in the church that has creative power. Jesus has creative power. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He walked out of the grave. First person to be raised from the grave or resurrected, never to die again. Now Lazarus has to die all over again. I don't know if that was bad or good. I think I would have said, man, what'd you do? I was on my way to heaven and you had to bring me back. But Jesus, never to die again. The debt, the debt of sin 
that started in Genesis with Adam and Eve have been paid for once and for all on the cross, never to be paid for again. But Jesus, once and for all, the ultimate one-time sacrifice, paid for our debt, a debt that we could never pay, we could never be good enough to do, we could never walk straight enough to accomplish. Jesus did that. Not because we're so good or, or we're so good at whatever we do or our jobs or whatever, but because of the agape love that God has for his creation. And that took some, some love to, to, to put your only begotten son on the cross. Uh, and I wasn't back then, you wasn't back then, but he did it for us too, to put your son on the cross. And in your circle of friends, be betrayed by your friends. Was that a bell? Oh, sorry. I didn't hear that. Anybody? Sorry. I think it's customary if the teacher don't hear the bell, it really never rang. Oh, man, I heard that one. Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't look like we're going to get to finish this. Uh, now, in verse 15b, Paul describes Jesus' primary position in relationship to created things. And this is so because he is the agent of creation. In verse 18b, Paul describes Jesus' primary position uh, in relation to regenerated things, such as the church, because he is also the agent of regeneration. Paul explains that a very special quality of Jesus' uh, person is that he has first placed in creation... Because the creation uh, was ruined by sin, Jesus was the one through whom it was recreated as the church. And so Jesus became first in everything, both old and new. And so Paul tells us that from a personal background perspective, Jesus is perfectly qualified to be the head of the church. One, because he is the only one who is beloved of God. Two, he shares divine nature with God. And three, he owes a primary position in both old and new uh, creation. And so I think we'll just stop right there. Um, any questions or comments?
Yeah. Yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and I love that. The, the, the bad with the good. And uh, the heretical teaching was against Jesus on the outset and letting him know, hey, he's not the head. There's some more things that you've got to do. There's some more things that Jesus didn't finish uh, in order for you to get uh, get salvation and get to heaven. But yeah, thank you. Any more comments? I guess not. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you enduring uh, your time with me and uh, I hope, trust, and pray that uh, that the word of God resonated with you and, and uh, gave you a new perspective on uh, on his word. And that something will uh, spark you and, and, and help you draw closer to God. It always helps me. Most of these lessons that I teach are always for me and not the person I'm speaking to. I, I need it more than anybody. So I think that's why certain lessons come to you. It's like, okay, you need to step on your own toes. And so I step on my own toes. So but anyway, uh, Scott, would you close us in a prayer?